Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to this ontologue session when I'm very pleased to say that I'm going to have less to do than uh, uh, I feared uh, because I'm, I can hand over to Tim Redmond to introduce our speaker, uh, Martin, uh, and uh, start uh, today's session. Tim, or oh, did you want us to go around? Sorry, Peter, did you want us to go around now? Yes. Let's go around and... Uh, uh, if, can we introduce ourselves in the order that we are on the list in the ontologue uh, session? So that means that I can start. Um, and I'm Matthew West. I'm the Reference Data Architecture and Standards Manager um, for Shell's downstream business. I've been involved in doing things like developing ISO 15926, uh, which is a, a four-dimensionless ontology implemented as a data model for the integration and exchange of engineering data. Next. I'm Peter Yim. I'm one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, along with my two colleagues, Leo Oberst from MITRE and Kurt Conrad from SageBrush Group. Uh, Tatiana? Uh, Tatiana Maluta. I'm a professor from the City University of New York, and uh, also I'm uh, often involved in design and development of database applications. Kate? Hey, hi, my name is Kate Nguyen. I am working for General Dynamics as a software engineer. I, um, I am working on a small project uh, doing a research on the Atlas, so I'm really new to the ontology, so glad to be here. Thank you. Adrian? Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Adrian Walker. I'm with a small company called Re-Engineering, and I uh, was formerly with IBM T.J. Watson, like uh, Martin O'Connor, it turns out. Um, also, I'll be, I guess, the next speaker in this series on March the 8th. And um, people who would like to play with the system uh, beforehand so they can ask really tough questions um, could go to our website, uh, reengineeringllc.com and uh, play with a live system there. It's going to be very interesting uh, to contrast uh, uh, what Martin's going to be reporting on today and what I'll be reporting on uh, a month from now. Bob. I'm Bob Smith, uh, Professor Emeritus at the California State University, former Chair of Artificial Intelligence back in those days. I'm currently interested in uh, uses of ontology for emergency response systems design environmental analysis uh, work basically under the umbrella of a company called Tall Tree Labs. Attila. This is Attila <laughs> Professor in Computer Engineering Department, Eastern Mediterranean University, North Cyprus. I do uh, research in, uh, on semantic uh, web and mostly engineering aspects. I'll be organizing this workshop uh, come July, end of July, on uh, engineering and integration systems. Again, this is the second time. Thank you. Thanks, Petula. Tanya? Hey, hi, I'm Tanya Sidorakian. I am a Protege developer and a researcher at Center Medical Informatics, and my research topic is collaborative ontology development. Thank you. Tim. Uh, Tim Redmond at Stanford, and um, I'm uh, working on the design and development of the Protege system, and uh, that's me. Ken? Hi, I'm Ken Batslavsky. I'm at uh, Northeastern University. Um, 
been involved in ontologies for many years, but uh, before that I actually did a lot of high-performance uh, database work, and I'm also interested in high-performance issues in uh, in ontologies and ontology uh, uh, processing. Hi, I'm Jim Spuma. I'm from a small software company here in Vancouver, Canada. Um, we make uh, AJAX uh, software components, um, and uh, I guess my my interest right now in ontology is uh, purely personal. Really, projects and all that I've done in the past. Thanks, Jake. Okay, so if I can now pass over to Tim to introduce uh, today's speaker, Martin O'Connor. Hi, so um, Martin O'Connor is, um, me and Martin work together at uh, Stanford, and um, recently uh, Martin has been doing a lot of work on, uh, on the, uh, the um, Swirl and Protege and, um, and understanding Swirl. And so when, he often comes into my office with uh, lots of problems and questions that are um, really interesting or difficult, and he recently came in talking about Swirl and databases and and uh, mapping Swirl to databases and the tricky problems that come up there. And when that happened, I, I felt that he was perfect, ideal match for, um, for the goals of this, um, this uh, mini-series. So, um, so while the rest is history, he's here and he's going to speak and tell us about Swirl and databases. Okay, thank you, Tim. So um, I'm going to talk about um, Swirl and OWL and databases. I guess I'm going to assume some level, le level of knowledge of OWL within the people that are listening, but I, I'm, I'm going to talk about Swirl because um, I'm not sure too many people would be familiar with it. And um, I'm going to lead that into the issue of, of querying um, ontologies and then uh, lead it further on into the, the issue of querying databases. So uh, next slide, please. Slide number two, yes. Essentially, I'm going to be talking, uh, giving an introduction to Swirl, um, talking about, then talk about some software that we've developed over the last few years here at, here at SMI called the Swirl tab, which is basically an environment for working with Swirl rules, both at the, um, at the graphical user interface level and also at the um, at a development level within within code. Um, as I worked with Swirl, I realized that it would be, as other people did too, I guess, that it would be pretty useful as a, as a query language in addition to a rule language. So I'm going to talk about that, and then I'm going to lead on to the the, the the sort of the subject of the talk, I guess, but something that is really exploratory at the moment, um, the, the idea of querying live databases um, using, using Swirl as, as the focus of that. Um, so a lot of the, the stuff I'll be talking about today is software that we have already out there, but the, the relational to OWL mapping is something that we've been working on really only for the last few months, and a lot of it's sort of exploratory, and, and maybe there are people out there who have better ideas on how to do this than I do, but um, I'm going to give you the, the ideas and the approach we're adopting, and hopefully it will... Um, that will lead to some discussion. So next slide, number three, please. So there's been a lot of interest, I guess, in the, in the semantic web circles on, on rules, um, and people are unsure what they're talking about when they talk about rules, but because um, if you see this picture, and I think this is one, one version from Tim Berners-Lee, rules appear in different places in this picture depending on what version you find uh, using, using a Google image search. And generally, sometimes it's put above OWL, other times it's put next to it, other times it's put to the side, um, other times it merges other boxes. But, but essentially, the important point is people, people are, are talking about rules a lot. There's quite a lot of interest in, in rules um, in the semantic web circles because, obviously, OWL buys you quite a lot of expressive power, but um, when you want to go a little bit further than, than just um, straightforward representation, when you want to do some um, 
deductive reasoning, more reasoning than, say, all sort of inference will provide you, 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 you sort of fairly naturally get the idea of rules. Um, all is, is quite a rich language in, in some ways, but it's restricted in, the term, in terms of many of the things that you can do in it, and it's hard to deduce certain types of knowledge from, from, from all. So, so the natural extension of that would be, would be rules. Uh, next slide, number four, please. So obviously, um, rule-based systems have been around. Uh, slide number, yeah, slide number four. Rule-based systems have been around for for many years in many different forms um, for ma for many decades, and they're used um, in engineering, commerce, law, and, and so on. Obviously, expert systems are, have been around for for since the 70s, or perhaps even a little earlier, also. So there's there's quite a lot of work has been done on on rule systems per se. So it, it's uh, it's not as though we, um, the, the idea is to to invent rules anew for the semantic web. There's a lot of there are a lot of technologies out there um, that people have been using and lots of experiences over the years using rule systems. Uh, next slide, please. So one of the main semantic web initiatives, I guess, in rules is, is the so-called rule, rule ML initiative, um, which was started, I think, in uh, 2001 and 2002. Um, and it's basically sort of an umbrella sort of organization uh, whose goal is to sort of uh, bring some focus to the to the to to the standardization efforts of, of rules on the web. So the idea is to um, is to sort of uh, focus everything or feed everything to the funnel of rule ML when, when people are talking about um, adding rules to the semantic web, rather than let people um, sort of randomly work on their work on their own. And one of the goals of, of rule ML is to sort of reuse existing uh, technology. Um, as I said, there, there, there are many rule systems out there. There are decades of experience um, in, in using rules, and you'd like to leverage that, um, that, that experience as much as possible. Um, so the goal of RuleML is to um, provide sort of an interoperation standard, if, if you will, um, to, to sort of focus the efforts and to try to uh, ultimately, I guess, map different rule systems into uh, talking common languages so that uh, they can work together. That's sort of the, the overarching goal. Um, the, one of the sort of the outcomes of the RuleML initiative has been the, the uh, Swirl language um, um, submission to the W3C. I think it was submitted in 2004. It's still under review, I think, and I'm not necessarily – it's not actually a standard as of yet. Um, but that's one of the sort of more concrete outcomes of the RuleML initiative. Um, there are other sort of outcomes in terms of sort of standard representation syntax for rules and so on, but um, – there's no actual software per se. It's not as though you can go to a website and download RuleML and run some rule engines. It's really more at the moment of a standards committee um, with some concrete de deliverables, but um, there's, there's no RuleML.jar, for example, that you can download and use in your programs. It's really more of a uh, sort of a, an umbrella organization to focus development effort or standardization effort. Next slide, please, number six. So as I said, uh, SWIRL, which stands for uh, Semantic Web Rule Language, is one of the, the outcomes of, of the Rule, LM, Rule ML initiative. And um, so I guess the ultimate goal of SWIRL, um, whether this will happen or not, is an open question, is, 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 it, is it aims to be the rule language of the, of the semantic web. Um, in principle, um, if somebody expresses some, some piece of knowledge about uh, an owl, uh, the semantic web that's, that's represented using L, SWIRL will be the, the sort of the main language of choice. That's the, that's the goal, at least. Um, so Swirl is, is nicely based on OWL in the sense that it, um, it extends OWL semantics. Um, it's based on OWL-DL, and it provides a, basically a, a rather simple rule language with unary and binary predicates um, and provides horn-like rules, which I'll go into, um, to, reason, um, to reason with OWL ontologies, essentially. Um, 
So basically, when you're when you're writing a swirl rule, you're you're dealing with um, owl concepts. Um, you're dealing with the classes and properties and individuals in, a, in an owl ontology. And um, it's not an arbitrary rule language in the sense that the, your 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 terms or your atoms in the rule have to be grounded in terms of owl concepts. Um, it's not like an arbitrary flexible rule language like like Jess, which could talk about any concepts if you map it to Jess, for example. It um, it, it really is designed to be purely um, purely an owl-based language with semantics based very, very strongly on OWL and quite, quite rigorous semantics, actually, which I'll, which I'll get into. Um, next slide, please, number seven. So I'll present a, a few slides just to give a, a flavor of, of, of Swirl itself. Um, it, it's, a, as I said, a fairly simple rule language with mostly unary and binary predicates. And here you see a rule with some, some binary predicates. And basically, this is a, a simple rule that, that will um, basically calculate a, a relationship has uncle between two, two sets of individuals or two individuals in an owl knowledge base. So the has parent clause on the left-hand side or the has parent atom basically will try to match two arbitrary individuals in, an, in a knowledge base, uh, X and Y. It will then um, um, try to find the has brother relationship between the Y that it has found in the initial clause and then the, the Z that it has found. So basically it will, it will find um, pairs of individuals, X and Z, that, that satisfy this clause, essentially a pattern match, like, like, a, standard, like a standard rule. Um, and then the nice thing about Swirl is that you can um, effectively deduce knowledge. So here, um, you're deducing the has-uncle relationship and you're assigning it, you're assigning the relationship between X and, and Z. So you've effectively um, found a particular pattern in your, in your knowledge base, in your ontology, and then you've asserted new knowledge based on, on that pattern. And that knowledge can then be saved into, into an owl ontology um, and it, as, as though it were asserted or, or, or ground initially. And um, I guess the important thing about Swirl is, um, or some of the important things, is that it's a, it has conjunction only. Uh, there's no negation, uh, no disjunction. So all, all, all of the, the rules are um, basically conjunctions of atoms, and then the, and the, the consequent is also a conjunction of, of atoms. Um, there, there's no disjunction, no, no negation, which I'll get to later, which is an important point. Uh, next slide, please, number eight. Here's another uh, rather similar rule, um, this time showing the unary predicates um, person. So person basically is an existing owl class, and um, Fred is actually an existing owl individual. So in addition to variables, um, which will map arbitrary individuals in, in a knowledge base, you can actually have named individuals. Um, so as I said earlier, um, essentially swirl rules deal with three things, owl classes, properties, and individuals. And uh, this is an example rule of, of, of actually dealing with all three. Fred is an actual individual in the uh, knowledge base, and the atom person, parenthesis Fred, basically asks the question effectively, um, is Fred a person? And if, if so, um, we'll try the second atom of the rule, which will be um, find the has-sibling property of, of, um, of Fred, and then we'll try to determine if that property um, is, uh, is represents, if that property, which is an individual, represents an individual, is, is also a man. And in which case, it will again infer new knowledge that it will attach the has-brother property to Fred and basically, basically say um, S is, um, is Fred's brother. And next slide, please, number nine. And so one of the, the really nice things about Swirl is that it's, uh, it's, it's extensible. Um, so the, it has, a, as I said, a rather simple, um, simple language, but um, it provides what, what are called built-ins. Um, which are basically arbitrary functions or arbitrary predicates 
that can accept parameters and essentially return true or false uh, based on the values of those parameters. So um, there are a few standard um, built-ins uh, defined uh, along with the swirl specification called, called basically the, called the, the core swirl built-ins. And they include standard built-ins that you would expect for integer comparison, uh, addition, subtraction, string manipulation, date manipulation, and some standard operations. So um, greater than is, a, is, is one of the sort of the more obvious mathematical operations provided by this uh, library. And the swirl B colon in front of it is a standard OWL terminology for basically the alias to the namespace of, of, um, of that particular built-in. So you can have built-in libraries, essentially, that you can use in swirl rules that could implement a variety of methods, um, and um, you can, once you implement those, which I'll get to a little bit later, um, you can actually use them directly in, in your swirl rules. Um, so it provides, it provides an extension mechanism effectively so that you can, um, you can extend your query language, um, or sorry, your rule language. So one thing we've done, for example, is we've developed a, a temporal library that implements the Allen operators, and um, so we have um, basically functions like duration before and after and so on for, for temporal intervals. And that allows us to reason with time rather conveniently in, in the rules that we, we develop. Uh, next slide, number nine, number ten, please. So that was a, a brief uh, flavor of us. Well, I'll be coming back to some more examples later. But the sort of the important, I guess, uh, upper-level characteristics of Swirl is that it's a W3C submission uh, in 2004. It's not actually a standard yet, but um, I'm not sure that necessarily matters in the sense that um, I think if it's, if it's out there and if the tools are usable for it, people will start using it. And um, we've been doing quite a bit of work here in Stanford trying to get usable tools for Swirl um, so that people will adopt it. I, mean, I don't think people particularly care if it's a standard or not necessarily if, if, um, if they have something to play with. Because um, up until Swirl came along, there were, there were opportunities to, to reason with OWL ontologies, but not in necessarily in a very principled way. There was, for example, in, in our protege env in OWL environment, a, a Jest tab, which allowed you to, to actually reason with, with OWL concepts. But it was a, sort of an ad hoc, loose mapping. And the semantics were not necessarily well-defined. Um, which is one of the, the sort of the nice things about Swirl is that it's, it's based on LDL semantics and it has rather firm semantics. It's not it's not arbitrary, so um, it, um, it, it 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 it's not unlike say Sparkle, which is not quite well defined semantics. Um, it has some fairly it has semantics that are very formal, um, and you can sort of use it with a certain degree of safety and and, and know that you're not breaking your OWL ontology per se by adding rules. Um, the rules themselves are actually part of the OWL ontology. And actually, formally, you can consider the rules as, as additional statements about your, your additional logical statements about your, your model. Um, as I said, there, there, there's been quite a lot of interest in it, and a lot of people have been developing tools in addition to people here at Stanford. And um, looking at the Wikipedia entry for Swirl, for example, you, I can see that um, systems such as Bossum and Hewlett and Pellet and Kaon2 um, um, have, um, have already got some Swirl support. So there, there, there's, there are quite a lot of tools being developed over, over the last six months to a year in, in, in particular. One, one final nice thing about uh, Swirl is that it, it can work with, with reasoners in the sense that, as I said, the language has semantics that are defined in terms of LDL. So um, the semantics of the rules can conform with the existing OWL restrictions so that um, you, the, the, the rules are not necessarily disconnected from the ontology semantically, as they often would be if you load an ontology into a different rule system. They're, they're connected quite intimately with the ontology. So um, the swirl rules can be checked for consistency in principle against the, um, 
against the actual constraints in an owl ontology so that you can, you can conclude that your logical model of the universe, as it were, is, um, is sound. Uh, next slide, number 11, please. So as I said, we've been developing uh, tools here over the last uh, year or two to work with, um, to work with Swirl um, in, the, in the Protege Owl environment. And um, we've developed a tool called the Swirl tab, which is freely available um, as part of Protege Owl. So when you download the Protege Owl environment, um, you, you get the Swirl tab functionality um, for, for free with it. And it's effectively a separate tab within the, um, within the editing environment that allows you to work with, with Swirl rules. And it allows you to, for example, um, edit and execute rules as you would expect. And also there are extension mechanisms to allow, um, allow interoperation with third-party rule engines. Um, so, for example, Swirl, as I said, is a specification. It's not a, a rule engine per se, so it doesn't define what engine you could use. And in principle, of course, you could uh, develop your own rule engine for, for Swirl, but it, it, it usually makes a lot more sense to actually use existing rule engine technologies and, and provide some sort of mapping under the covers. Um, for that, which is what we've done. Um, another thing we've done is developed an extension mechanism to allow um, built-ins to be uh, defined by users uh, in Java. So if you want to add a built-in to the language, it provides a mechanism for implementing those built-ins in, in Java and to actually dynamically load them and execute them um, from within a rule engine um, at, at runtime. And the more recent stuff we've been working on is, is, um, is querying, um, which, which I'll get to. Next slide, please, number 12. So just to sort of link you to the, um, the wiki page for Swirl, um, it, uh, the Swirl tab is, is fully documented in this, in this wiki page. So you can, um, in addition to downloading it for free, you can, you can basically see the documentation of um, both the GUI parts and the, um, and the API parts of, of, of the Swirl tab. And uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, the Swirl is not just um, the Swirl tab is not just an environment for graphically or interacting with Swirl, but there, there are lots of low-level um, Java APIs so that you can embed um, Swirl functionality in your Java applications. And judging from the, the Protege Owl mailing list, quite a few people are actually using Swirl in that mode. They're actually writing Java applications and embedding um, Swirl into it um, and, and invoking rules from within their application. Next slide, number 13, please. So I'll briefly go through some of the, uh, some of the, the, the main functionality of, of the, the Swirl tab just to give you a sense of what, what it does. Um, and the editor does sort of all the obvious things you would, would, you would, would expect. It allows you to um, edit uh, rules and, and save them in, in, a, in an OWL ontology. Um, and you can interactively create them, um, and it, it works quite seamlessly with the existing Protege OWL environment, so it's not a standalone application. So you've, you've got the full functionality of, of the Protege OWL editing environment when you're altering rules, which is quite nice because you can explore parts of the ontology as you're altering a, a rule. Next slide, please. So just a, a brief screenshot of Protege Owl, for those of you who are not familiar with it. It's um, pretty much the de facto Owl editing um, platform out there. Um, there are a few others, but this is the, the, probably the most popular one by far, and also it, it's free and it's, it's quite stable and used by qu quite a lot of people. And it effectively provides a, a nice interface for um, interacting with, um, with Owl uh, ontologies. So on the left-hand side, you can define classes and class hierarchies, and then you can implement individuals or define individuals of, of, of those particular classes and explore them and edit them with the ontology. And you can, you can populate your ontology um, at the graphical user interface level if you wish. 
and explore um, explore parts of the ontology and add restrictions and so on. So, I mean, you, you can go to protege.stanford.edu and download this if you want to play with it, and there's a full tutorial, but just to give you a, a sense of, of what it is for those of you who are not uh, familiar with it. Uh, next slide, number 15, please. So the Thrill um, editor is basically just an extension to um, Protege-L, and it's, a, it's basically a separate tab that you can activate if you've got Thrill rules in your, in your ontology, and it will, it will allow you to edit those rules. Something I should mention is that um, Swirl, or sort of Protege-L, in addition to Swirl, that they, they're, they're, they have lots of, um, sort of APIs, extension mechanisms, so that third-party software can embed them. So a lot of people have contributed plugins to um, to Protege-L, so there are plugins to do many, many different things, and, and Swirl is, is one of the, the internal plugins, I guess, that we've developed. Um, but there, there are dozens of others to deal with Jess and to deal with other, um, to interact with Reasoners, for example, and lots of other things. So it's quite a nice platform in that regard. Uh, next slide, please. Um, here's just another screenshot showing how you can pop up a rule and then edit it interactively. And if you look at the bottom of the screen, these icons basically provide links to the ontology. So you can type a rule in as, as text effectively, but you can also explore the, um, you can explore the ontology um, as you're editing the rule. So you can determine what classes they are, there are in an ontology as you're editing and what individuals. Um, an important point, which I, I guess I didn't mention enough, is that um, these rules are not are, are you can, they can be entered in free form standard, but they're they're checked on, on the fly. So if you have, for example, this rule here with the house child atom, it, it will verify that that um, that particular um, thing exists in the knowledge base. Um, you, you don't just arbitrarily type properties and, and classes and so on. You, um, you, you will check that such a thing exists. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so the API, which I'll just uh, basically gloss over, is um, a, a mechanism to provide low-level interaction with, uh, with, with these um, things. So you can basically load and manipulate rules in, in your Java application without going anywhere near the protocol GUI per se. And then it's fully documented, so I won't really concentrate on this. Uh, slide number 18, please. Uh, so as I already mentioned, uh, Swirl is basically a language specification with, with well-defined uh, semantics, but um, it's, it's up to a developer, as it were, to, um, to implement uh, whatever system they wish themselves. So um, one could, as I said, implement a new rule engine from scratch to deal with Swirl, but it's, it's obviously a lot more efficient to, um, to inter integrate many of the rule systems that are freely available out there and to basically map the Swirl rules to those rule engines, which is not a very uh, difficult task in some sense. As you can see, the, the language is quite simple. The concepts are, are shared for at least, uh, I mean, it's a basic horn closed type language. Um, the, the concepts are shared among many different types of rule engines, so the mapping is not conceptually at least uh, a very difficult task. So what we've done is developed a, a bridge that will allow um, basically the mapping of, um, of um, Swirl rules to um, third-party third rule engines. Uh, next slide, please, number 19, please. So graphically, the bridge is a, a software module that, sort of, that sits between a, um, a, the, the OWL um, system, or the sort of the protege OWL system, uh, and an arbitrary rule engine. And it provides standard, um, standard functionality that all sort of third-party rule engines would share so that you can, it will extract OWL knowledge and, and rules from a, an ontology and essentially save them in a convenient internal form that can then be mapped to a third-party rule engine. And one of the rule engines we've decided on, um, or we've implemented, is, is, is Jess. And I'll get into that, so next slide, please. So basically, um, 
as I said, the, the rule engine provides sort of standard functionality that all rule engines um, would need to actually interact with, with Swirl. Um, so instead of having to, from scratch, um, develop uh, a new rule engine, it, it provides a, or a new interface, it provides a, the standard functionality, and all, all the developer of the third-party rule engine has to do is, is concentrate on the actual mappings rather than the, on the, the entire infrastructure. So next slide, please. So Jess is a, a convenient uh, Java-based rule language that's, that's in, in wide use and um, has been used for many years, and we decided to, to use Jess as this, the first rule language of choice to, to, to basically execute Swirl rules. Um, Jess, as nicely documented, it's, it's fairly stable. It's reasonably a stable rule system, um, and it does actually require licensing, unfortunately, for non-academic use, but it's generally not a large fee. So unfortunately, the Jess part of the... Um, of the system per se is not open source. That has to be downloaded separately. But um, it, um, we, we're, we're thinking about um, other free, or free, free rule languages in the next year or so, so that the, the entire system will be, will be open source. Um, and Pellet might be one of the languages, for example, that we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll use that with. So next slide, please. So just to show you that we've also developed um, a graphical environment to work with, um, to work with uh, the Jess rules. So basically, when you're in a, the Swirl tab, you can click on the J icon on the top right, and that will, that will, that will pop up the, um, the, um, the Jess uh, tab, and that provides a way of interacting with, with Jess. And the interaction is actually quite simple. It's just three buttons. Um, you basically uh, can, can transfer the knowledge from OWL into Jess, run the Jess inference engine, and you can review the knowledge using the tabs here and then send it back. In principle, there could be one button here in the sense that it could just do the entire process at once, but for, for debugging purposes and for review purposes, um, I've basically put three buttons so that you can, you can review the process of the knowledge being transferred from OWL to Jess and back again. But I think ultimately these, these will go away and it will just be a, a one-off process. The rules will run, and if there's a successful execution, um, the knowledge will be asserted back into OWL. Next slide, please. Um, and these are just, yeah, so you can, we can just uh, slide through these slides all the way to slide number um, 29. That those slides just give, an, give a, of a sense of the, um, the, different, um, <clears throat> the different tabs within, within, within um, the Jeff engine. And uh, as I said, you can download these, uh, this for free. Um, you may have to get a license for Jess, or you can, you can actually get an evaluation copy for 30 days if you want to see if it actually does what you want it to do. And then, and then, um, and just install it, and the wiki gives full details on how to, where to put the Jess uh, jar, basically, so that it will work with Protege Alice. It's a pretty straightforward um, installation process. Okay, so um, a few things that are, that are sort of incomplete in the current implementation is that the, um, the bridge um, provides the full implementation of swirl rules, but it actually ignores um, the owl constraints that may be in the ontology. So there, there, there is a potential there for logical inconsistencies because you could have an OWL constraint that um, is contradicted by a rule, for example, um, or, or vice versa. And um, it, this, this is currently not detected. To do this properly, one actually requires um, an integrated uh, reasoner and rule engine. So to use Swirl at the moment, it's still, you can still use it. You basically run a reasoner on the ontology first to make sure it's in, that it's in a consistent state. Um, then you can transfer the knowledge to a rule engine. Um, Swirl will basically assert new knowledge, which you can push back into OWL, and then, again, you need to run the reasoner to, to, to ensure that the new knowledge does not conflict um, with, the knowledge, with the constraints already. So there's a sort of a manual process there at the moment. 
there, there's been some research in this area over the last few years, and there's a system out there which we hope to interact with in the next uh, in the next year or so, hopefully called Kion2, which is actually a, a reasoner for OWL, but it also, also uh, integrates Swirl at the very lowest level so that it actually fully understands Swirl and can accept an OWL ontology with Swirl rules and actually um, in, ensure that there's full consistency between the rules in the ontology and the actual constraints in the ontology so that so it builds up a fully consistent model and any inferences that it makes are also guaranteed to be consistent. Uh, next slide, please, number 30. So I'll, I'll briefly go over some, something I mentioned earlier called the Swirl built-in bridge, which I think is um, important in the sense that um, the, the Swirl is fairly restrictive by itself. It allows you to do quite a lot of reasoning about all concepts and individuals at a sort of a class level and a property level and so on. But, but in, mostly when you find yourself writing rules, you're, you're going to have standard operations like before and after and equals and so on on, on the data in, in the actual ontology. And um, it's quite hard to write useful rules without um, this functionality. So as I said, the, the, some of the core functionality is already provided by um, some built-ins that, that are defined along with the Swirl specification. And um, what we have provided is a, a basically a dynamic uh, Java library loading mechanism so that users can define uh, their own libraries of built-ins in Java very easily and that they can actually be loaded into um, an execution environment at runtime and, and executed. So we've co we, we call this component the Swirl built-in bridge, which basically allows the rule engines to bridge to um, built-in implementations. In principle, of course, every rule engine that you deploy, like Jess or, or Pellet or whatever, could implement all the built-ins itself from scratch. Um, but in, it would, that, that would sort of be an onerous task, particularly as the number of built-in libraries grows. So uh, what this allows one, one to do is to actually um, use the same built-in libraries and share them among multiple rule engines. Obviously, if a, a built-in operation is something that's used a lot by a particular rule engine, perhaps that should be implemented natively. But in any case, for, for it has the option of not implementing those initially, at least. And maybe as performance issues become significant, it can decide to implement um, the, the, the um, implement the um, the, the built-ins natively. Next slide, please, number 31. So I'll quickly go over this. This is sort of a low-level detail on how one um, defines these in Java, but I'll just give you, these slides will give you a sense of how fairly straightforward it is. So next slide, please. Um, this will um, this, this, this gives an example of defining, of defining a single built-in called string equals ignore case, which is a, a basic um, built-in to compare two string parameters and decide if they're, if they're um, equal or not. So next slide, please, number 33. And this gives you uh, the idea of how you basically implement a Java um, package with a particular name so that the library, so that the Prozial environment can find it at runtime. You define a class called Swirl Built-in Methods Impl, and then you have you define the signature of your methods uh, of your method in that in that class. And that, that's that's all that's involved for defining the actual the infrastructure for a for a for a Swirl Built-in library. And then next slide, please, number 34, is a very simple um, implementation of string equals ignore case. It's got fairly standard argument checking um, routines that I've, I've already provided. And the actual, the heavy lifting, as it were, is on the very last line of the function, which actually does the actual comparison. So these sort of, whatever, 30 lines of code gives an example, give an example of how simple it is to define a, um, a Java built-in um, in, 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 in the environment. And effectively, you compile this code, put it into a jar that you put into the protege directory, and magically at runtime, um, 
the system will find this built-in and allow you to use it in rules and allow you to execute it from whatever rule engine you happen to be using. Next slide, please, number 35. Um, and this is more or less repeating what I've said. You, you, can, um, you can run this from any rule engine. So if you implement string equals ignore case um, and define it in the way I just showed, um, you don't have to do this again when you, have a, when you implement, say, another rule engine. Um, all rule engines have the ability to call this method dynamically from within themselves, and there are APIs to do that, so that all of the libraries that, um, that come with, with Scroll uh, are reusable across rule engines. And as I mentioned, if, if certain methods are done rather efficiently uh, in, in the rule engine itself, the implementer of a particular implementation can decide to to, to natively implement those methods, which can be important, obviously, for things like mathematical operations, which are probably much easier to implement natively and certainly more efficient. And next slide, number 36, please. Um, okay, well, this is just, just an example of um, a fairly complicated rule that we've written for, um, for a clinical trial protocol um, conformance um, query that we did um, in, in, in the context of a subcontract that we're doing to the immune tolerance network. The details of the query aren't too important, but the important thing is here we've, we've implemented um, a built-in library that deal with, deals with temporal operations, which is actually not in the current um, release of Protogel. It should be in the next build, maybe in the next two weeks. But basically this is um, this um, library provides temporal operators for dealing with, with time. So you can um, do things, the standard Allen operators like before and after and so on, and duration. So here is a fairly complicated um, rule that um, more or less tries to find non-conforming patients in a, in a, in a knowledge base based on, um, based on some um, actual temporal constraints mostly. And um, so these, these temporal methods are implemented and can be used from this rule. And effectively what this rule will do is use those built-ins to determine if a patient um, conforms to the therapy or, or not. Next slide, please, number 37. So this brings us on to the issue of um, querying. So Swirl is really um, a rule language, um, and that's what it's defined as, not, not, not necessarily a query language, but um, converting a, a rule language into a query language is, is not all that difficult, either conceptually or, or practically, um, because you can, you, can see as, you can see the rule antecedent effectively as a pattern that you match. So it's effectively like a query in the sense that you're saying which knowledge you want to match in a particular knowledge base. And what we've been working on recently, um, which leads us up to the database stuff, is um, using Swirl as, as a query language so that you can not only use it to infer new knowledge um, in a knowledge base, but that you can also use it to, um, to actually find out what's in a knowledge base. So at the moment, there's no, not necessarily very easy ways of querying a knowledge base. You can obviously go to the GUI and um, navigate the tree hierarchy, or you can write some Java code to um, you can write some Java code to sort of retrieve uh, information from an ontology. Um, but it's not necessarily all that convenient to, to write those sorts of um, retraction or queries. So um, what we've done is tried to turn Swirl into a, a query language so that um, you can actually use Swirl and its syntax and its semantics, which is the important thing, and actually query the, the knowledge base in a safe and, and convenient uh, way. And we've managed to do this um, without breaking the language per se. I mean, one, one can imagine um, writing uh, a new language or extending the language, but um, I think it's important that, that, um, that, that we, we sort of maintain the well-founded semantics as well, not just arbitrarily extend the language so that the semantics are, are no longer clear. So with built-ins, we've managed to provide a mechanism to do this. 
Uh, next slide, number 38, please. So here is an example of a swirl query. So as you can see, the left-hand side of the antecedent of the rule is as before. We're basically looking for all adults in an ontology. We're looking for all persons with an age of greater than 17. Um, and we'd like to retrieve that. Um, we're not actually inferring any new knowledge here. We're, what we're doing is just trying to find that knowledge in the knowledge base. And what I've done is provided um, a library called the Swirl Query Library, which is a set of built-ins that, al that allows you to sort of more or less mimic SQL-like queries on the in the consequent of a rule so that you can basically say, I would like to retrieve um, these, these pieces of information from the, um, from the, from the pattern that's been matched on the on the, on the uh, left-hand side of the rule. And this basically will provide, um, will select all um, adults in a knowledge base and will basically order the result by, by age. And as you can see, this, this, um, this um, query does not change the syntax of Swirl in any way. It's still syntactically conformant um, with Swirl. Um, all of the, the, the querying functionality is implemented inside in the built-in so that semantically we haven't broken anything. Um, Yes, and I'll get back to that point, point again. So next slide, please. Um, so I've also implemented a, a, a GUI to, to allow, obviously, the display of these uh, results. So um, this is an example of the, the GUI, which just plugs in to the, um, the existing Swirl tab. You can just click on the, the question mark on the upper right-hand corner of the screen, and the Query Control tab will appear. So next slide, please. And then that will allow you to select um, a swirl query um, from the list of rules that you would normally see in the swirl editor and to execute those rules. And um, what it will do is display the results of, um, of, of the query. So it provides a standard SQL-like interface, I guess, or, um, to, to, um, to query a, a knowledge base. So uh, this is quite useful for debugging or just for exploring your knowledge base and trying to find um, patterns of things that match certain characteristics or, or, or not. This is... Um, not currently available in the current release of Proto-JL. This will be available, I, I hope, in the next uh, two, 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 two to three weeks, um, the, the actual query functionality. Um, I just have a few minor details to iron out with it, but effectively it's written and should be available fairly soon. And it should be usable um, both at the GUI level and also, as I'll get to, at the, at the API level. So next slide, please, number 41. So... Um, this, as I said, can be used at the GUI level, but also um, this can be, can be used like um, in the same way that you can use JDBC or the like in um, Java applications. You can actually query the, the knowledge base from, um, from uh, Java code. So it basically will provide an interface that you can pass in a Swirl query, and then you will get the results back in, in a tabular form effectively that you, can, that you can evaluate in your code and display them on a GUI or do what you wish with them. Um, and this, this, um, this functionality doesn't, um, is layered on top of the existing Swirl functionality, so it, it basically gets the, the rule functionality for free. So um, the Jest rule engine, which we've mostly been using, is used seamlessly in the background here. Um, so any rule engine should interface with this. If, if a new rule engine is plugged in in the future, the, the query functionality shouldn't change because it's layered on top of, of the existing Swirl func functionality. Next slide, please, number 42. So the important thing I think about Swirl is um, it's got well-defined semantics um, in terms of OWL. 
So the, one of the more, uh, more important or the more popular uh, query languages out there is called Sparkle, which is effectively an RDF uh, query language, even though it can in some sense be used with OWL. Um, but um, it's, it's RDF-based. Um, its semantics are not fully clear. People are more or less working out the semantics uh, retroactively, I guess. Um, and um, it, it, um, it deals with RDF quite well, and there are a lot of people who are actually doing a lot of work to make it um, work um, efficiently uh, in deal, dealing with um, RDF stores. Um, but um, one thing about Sparkle is it effectively looks like SQL, and it's not quite as extensible as Swirl in addition to not having the semantics in that it doesn't have the ability to add um, new operators. In the same way, I guess, as most SQL implementations don't have the ability to add uh, new operators, even though I guess you could do it with these stored procedures, but not necessarily in a very standard way. So Swirl provides a nice sort of, um, sort of pa pattern for integration, uh, and the important uh, point is um, it, it can work with reasoners in the sense that swirl rules are um, they're they're not arbitrarily connected to the knowledge base they're intimately connected at the knowledge level so that the the rules or the queries that you write can actually um, also invoke a reasoner and get semantically um, sound results in based of in terms of LDL ontologies so I think swirl is, is attractive as a query language in that regard because the semantics are already the, the semantic operations have already been worked out to some degree with some caveats that I'll that I'll get to. Uh, next slide, number 43. The, so the important thing, of course, though, is um, the semantics can be quite um, conforming if you're not if you're careful. But you really should, um, when making queries, um, you have to be very, very careful that you you distinguish between a query language and a, and a rule language because Swirl um, and OWL um, have, are essentially based on open world semantics. And generally, when you're making a query, of course, you're sort of closing off the world. Um, you're, when you make a query, you're asking how many individuals or how many things match a particular pattern in my current knowledge base, um, which is essentially closed world semantics. Um, so this is actually okay as long as you just use the queries to retrieve information from the ontology. So if you ask, for example, how many alleles do I have in my current ontology and just display the results graphically, um, there really isn't any problem here because um, your semantics are reasonably clear. You're looking at the, the current version of your ontology in a closed world manner, um, even though there are some complications there too. But um, if, for example, you make an inference uh, based on, say, the number of adults in your ontology and you put that, um, put that knowledge back in the knowledge base, um, then you reach um, you, you you can reach all sorts of problems. You basically have non-monotonicity in the sense that um, once information changes, the logical statements that you made earlier are contradicted. And all the L semantics and swirl semantics are based on monotonic logic, effectively. In that um, the, the the swirl rules are logical statements about your universe um, in, a, in a, using an open world semantics. So the important point is um, I, I'm I'm trying to restrict the language uh, as much as possible so that querying is separated quite strongly from rules, even though they, they, they look quite similar on the surface, so that you can, you can use Swirl to make queries to find knowledge in your knowledge base, but you don't, um, you don't try to infer new knowledge that you put into your knowledge base based on those queries. You usually you use those queries in separate applications or for debugging or for just reviewing information in an ontology, not for making logic, further logical statements about, about the ontology. Uh, next slide, please, number 44. So this leads to the issue of um, 
relational data um, and dealing with it. So in a number of projects that we've, we started working on in the last six months, um, the data um, in these projects are in relational databases operationally. The people running, running these projects that we're dealing with um, use relational databases for obvious reasons. Um, relational databases are not going to go away anytime soon. In, in principle, um, in principle, uh, RDF triple stores will replace um, sort of um, um, current technologies, and, and, and at some point in the future, um, um, sort of all technologies or, or semantic web technologies will actually perhaps be as scalable as databases. But current, current technologically, that is not the case uh, at the moment. Uh, I guess the important point is that when you try to deploy semantic web technologies in existing projects and existing environments, that they, they're most likely are using existing relational database technology. But um, we would still like to bridge that gap, as, as it were, so that we can map the, um, the ontologies that we've created and the data model that we've created to the, um, to the databases. And we'd like to do this in a, in a, in a hopefully a, a somewhat automatic manner um, um, so that um, we can have a solution that we don't have to fully customize for every deployment. There's always going to be some customizations I get to, but um, we'd like some tools um, to do this um, bridging, as it were, and to support this bridging so that we can actually use the nice swirl queries that we have already and to query, um, they, to map these queries automatically to relational queries underneath the covers so that um, we can deal with um, databases that are out there and deal with knowledge that are out there. As I, as I mentioned um, at the end here, then, triple stores are, in principle, at some point in the future, maybe all, database, all data will be in triple stores rather than in relational databases, but that's realistically not going to happen for for many decades for most projects if it, if it happens at all. So dealing with relational data is, is, is I think, is crucial for, for, for at least the, the next period of time. Uh, next slide, please, number 45. So here's an example query that um, we needed to make in a clinical trial study that we're working on recently. And we want to query the exact number of patients per study, per visit, per site for a particular protocol that we're looking at. Um, the, we have, we're developing ontologies to control the, the process of deploying a clinical trial, but the, the actual operational data in the trial are, of course, um, going to be in, in relational databases. Um, but we still have this knowledge model of what patients look like and what visits look like, and we'd like to be able to make uh, knowledge-level queries. We could, of course, make queries at, uh, at the SQL level on, directly on the relational databases, but we've effectively lost, lost the knowledge at that point. We're doing a manual mapping in our heads, and the the semantic gap um, is, is, is significant. So we'd like to bridge that semantic gap. Uh, next slide, number 45, please. Sorry, I missed that. And so this is just, this is just a, a review of the query. Uh, next slide, number 46. And this shows the, the graphical tool that we're developing um, to, to look at the results. But the, the important point here is um, that we, um, we want to be able to make operational runtime dynamic queries on, on data that are out there. And we'd hopefully like to do this in a fairly efficient manner. And that, this is something we've been working on over the, the past few months. Uh, next slide, please, number 47. So clearly, um, there's, a, there's a model mismatch. The relational model, um, which is reasonably formal, and the L model, which is also quite formal, are, are quite different, obviously. Uh, the relational model is based on NRE tuples. And the, the L and underlying RDS model are based on triples. And... Um, the, 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 obviously, the models don't conform in, in a direct way. Um, relational databases actually have quite a fairly rich knowledge model, but um, often uh, most actual typical relational databases don't employ a lot of that model. By using keys and indexes and primary keys and so on, you can actually 
be quite formal about the meaning of a lot of things in an existing relational databases, but in reality, um, relational databases are, are, are modeled in a fairly ad hoc manner, and sometimes performance uh, requirements argue against normalization. A lot of um, web-based um, database uh, systems, for example, um, or, or databases that are at the back end to a website, uh, have very denormalized data because if your data are very normalized, queries typically involve joins over many tables. And if you want a very rapid response to, to queries, that, that's not very convenient. So a lot of actual practical real databases are, are, um, are not normalized. They're very flat, which makes it even more difficult to, to map them to, to triples per se. So essentially, there's a mapping task to be done between, um, between relational databases and, and, and triples. And um, some of these mappings can be inferred automatically from some tables in the sense that if you've got a primary key in a table, you know that every row is unique in that table, and um, you know that you can pull triples out fairly easily. And if you have foreign keys into other tables with primary keys, you can infer the relationships there. But in general, you can only infer um, a small amount of the relationships that actually exist in, the, in a schema automatically. Generally, the user has to guide the process because the user has the knowledge, uh, the, the person that designed the schema has the knowledge as to the real meaning of the data. So it's, there's usually a case that um, manual mapping is required that the, the user actually has to specify what the relationships are. Theoretically, it's actually not a difficult task um, to do the mapping, but in practical, practically, one has to actually go to the schema and understand it and, um, and tell, tell and identify manually what the, what the mappings are. Uh, next slide, please, number 48. So we've been working on some technologies um, to do this mapping, and, uh, um, and several things are needed, of course. You need, um, first of all, you need a, an ontology to describe the schema of an arbitrary relational database, so that if you're given a, a relational database, you can populate this ontology to describe the, the knowledge that's in there at the, at the relational level. Um, and identify the relationships in terms of what things are related to other things so that you can actually ultimately identify the triples. So essentially the scheme ontology is just a straightforward model of a relational database. Um, then of course we, we would like to map this to whatever model we have in our system um, based on triples. Um, and um, so we require a mapping ontology to do this mapping. So we're developing this ontology and we're also developing um, tools to, to, to inform this masking process so that you can point the software at a, a, an arbitrary relational database. It will find out what tables are in there and, and columns and data types and so on. It will populate a schema ontology. And then you will identify your domain ontology that you want to map to, and then you will actually specify the mappings in a graphical manner um, in terms of to effectively identify what the, what the, um, what the triples are in, in, in your database. Um, this is something we're working on and hope to have available in, in the next three to six months. Um, Tying in with all that, of course, is um, the query language and a query engine. Um, ultimately, you're going to have to want to make queries on the data um, in the same way as you want to make queries on your knowledge base. So you need a language, which I think conveniently can be Swirl, and you need a query engine, which can be an existing query engine that we, we've used, but there, there are still uh, significant performance issues, which I'll get into some of these now. So next slide, number 49. So again, we've, we've just sort of adopted a, a bridge architecture. So effectively, you want to be able to deal with um, your OWL knowledge base that happens to have data in a, in a database uh, in a seamless manner. The, you need some bridge component that will bridge from the relational model um, to the OWL knowledge base. And all, that bridge will also have to interact with a rule engine. 
So if you, for example, make um, a query on a knowledge base that involves um, a query on a knowledge base that happens to have some of its individuals stored in a database, that involves retrieving those individuals and um, feeding those individuals to a rule engine for further inference. So it's, it's not just a pulling all the database in sort of process. I mean, one obvious solution uh, is to pull all of the the individuals or, or the tuples in a database into an L knowledge base and just store them there permanently. Um, that obviously is not a great solution in the sense that it doesn't necessarily scale very well. Some databases have gigabytes of data, and um, most current um, OWL and, and semantic web technologies don't scale all that well to, to knowledge bases that have hundreds of thousands of individuals. But it also um, leads to a disconnect, of course, because the, the database that you want to interact with may um, may have live data that changes dynamically. And of course, you can write software to synchronize the, the relational database to the OWL model um, dynamically, but writing that software is very, very tricky too. So um, the, the, the best current solution, I think, is to use uh, existing relational database management systems as, as much as possible, because um, relational databases are pretty much a proven scalable technology. And um, they make queries very, very efficiently, and they store lots of data very, very efficiently. So we'd like to use that technology as much as possible and not try to replicate that technology um, within, a, within a sort of a semantic web environment. Um, ultimately, people are trying to do that with triple stores, but a triple store demands that you store your data ultimately always as a triple in a triple store, whereas um, this is sort of dealing with the fact that in reality, most data for the foreseeable future will, um, will not be in triple stores, it will be in databases. So, and, uh, so this provides sort of a, an environment to hopefully efficiently um, to deal with that, that interaction. Next slide, please, number uh, 50. So the bridge is, is, is responsible for optimizing the, the queries to, to oops, number 50. It is. Hello? Uh, yes, it's, it is on 50 now. Okay, I think my screen is out of sync, sorry. Yes. Yeah, you <laughs> okay, thank you click on the refresh every now and then. Oh, yes, I, I didn't do that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's now there. Yes, thanks. Okay, so slide number 50. Um, so um, we'd like to support, as I said, a, a dynamic um, relational to OWL mapping. Um, and we'd like to do this in a non-naive way. Obviously, if you make um, a query, and I'll show you an example of one in a moment, you could retrieve all possible relevant, all, all possible knowledge that is relevant from the database and then do further inference on that. Um, but that, that might not be very efficient if you want to, say, get the, um, the average age of all the patients in your database. Well, actually, that's a bad example. But say, for example, you wanted to get, um, you wanted to get a particular patient from your database. The, 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 the correct thing to do was not bring in all those patients and then get the, the rule system or the query to then exclude all the others after you brought them into memory. Uh, the, 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 the other thing to try is to bring in as little as possible and to offload the heavy lifting as much as possible to, to SQL. Um, I should mention that uh, there are two other systems that are attempting to do this um, out there. They're reasonably recent systems, are, um, and I think they're both open source. Um, one is called D2RQ, and one is called D2O Mapper, and they both um, do, do some of this already with Sparkle. Um, so they allow you to make Sparkle queries over um, existing relational databases. Um, we've been playing with D2RQ quite a bit, um, and it provides a, a reasonably nice solution uh, at the Sparkle level. It's purely, it's, the semantics are purely RDS-based, um, um, and it, it does a reasonably good job of, of the mapping, but it still requires a lot of manual inter intervention to define the mappings, 
and it, it, it doesn't always um, generate very clever queries, shall we say, that, that really exploit as much of the optimization that they could. Some of the queries are clever, some aren't, uh, depending on the patterns that you employ. Um, so um, th this is this is this is an, an area that other people are also interested in, in, in mostly focusing on Sparkle actually, and we're trying to go sort of one level beyond and focus on on Owl and Swirl to 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 sort of get the, the richer semantics that that, that 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 it provides over RDF. We've also done something similar to this in the past, not on a query-based system, but in a in a in a frame-based non-Owl system where we. Um, we use an optimized access strategy to get stuff from the database uh, for, a, for a temporal surveillance, and we try to ensure that we would offload as much work as possible to, um, to the database. And so we've, we've, we've used this approach in the past, and it works quite well in reducing the amount of data brought into actual sort of um, OWL-type ontologies. Uh, next slide, please, number 51. So as I've mentioned a few times, uh, current ontology school tools are not scalable. Um, databases are. Um, so um, we want to um, we want to um, offload as much of the work as we can onto RDBMSs so that we can um, identify we can we can sort of do as little as work as possible inside in the the current semantic web system so that um, uh, we, we're dealing with as minimal amount of data as possible uh, based on on the query. So the query engine is responsible, or the bridge really is responsible for hopefully detecting patterns in, in the queries so that it can recognize um, that certain things are going to be required and certain things aren't based on, the, by, based on scanning of the query both statically and also at runtime to determine um, what data it needs to actually get a, in a sort of a lazy evaluation as a were manner. So the data should only be retrieved at the la as a last possible resort only when they're definitely needed. Um, and um, this is a... Built-ins in Swirl actually make this trickier and more interesting in the sense that because you can define an arbitrary built-in, um, life gets more tricky, as I'll show on the next slide. So let's go to slide number 52. So let's, um, this is the example query that I showed a little bit earlier where um, you're basically trying to retrieve um, all um, people in the knowledge base with an age greater than 17. Um, and one way, of course, to execute this query would be to bring in all individuals and their ages from the, from the database and then apply the built-in uh, greater than to all of those. So bring in potentially 10,000 individuals into your, say, JavaScript engine or whatever technology you're employing, and then exclude all, all of them that don't meet the criteria um, based on the implementation of the built-in. Um, that clearly might not be the most efficient thing to do for a query like this. Um, maybe it would be much nicer to actually um, map the query to SQL and um, actually exclude all things that you know are not definitely going to satisfy some parts of the query, which isn't too hard to do for certain things in, in uh, Swirl, because Swirl, as I mentioned, only allows conjunction. So if any one of the atoms in, a, in the, uh, the antecedent of a rule fails, the whole rule will fail. So um, you, can, you can sort of be fairly clever about what you do, and, and um, with, because disjunction isn't allowed, it's not as, as tricky. As, as it would be in the case of disjunction, because with disjunction, it's very hard to decide when, when to bring in data and not. So what, we, what we're working on now is trying to, um, in a sense, annotate built-ins so that we can, for certain simple built-ins, we can actually identify the sort of optimizations that a, a, an engine can make so that it's not going to bring in data unnecessarily um, for, for those individuals, um, so that the data are only brought in that one has some sense that already they will meet the criteria. So next slide, please, number 53. So um, we, can, we can do this um, really reasonably straightforwardly for numeric and built-ins like greater than or equal to. Um, um, 
and what we're trying to do now is annotate these so that we can uh, automatically detect what, what sort of optimizations to make. There are other optimizations, for example, that you can make with temporal built-ins, and this is something we've worked on before. Um, when you're doing temporal processing of data, you're often dealing with uh, time slices of data. So, for example, in the surveillance project that we had, we dealt with data a day at a time. And the obvious thing there is to bring in the data a day at a time as it's needed rather than sort of bringing in the entire database and ex excluding the days you're not interested in. So there are certain axes of optimizations that are quite convenient for certain types of projects. Um, so if, if with, with, with temporal operations are one good example where you, you know you're dealing with a particular time slice and you can exclude a lot of the data from the relational database automatically when you're making those queries. Um, there are other in sort of more internal optimizations that we're playing with. There's a, there's a plug-in for the JES rule engine called the, the JES, the Java Stock Storage Provider Framework that actually does in-rule optimizations. And it, um, it tries to reorganize the, uh, the atoms in a rule per se so that um, it will try to find the ones that are more, more likely to fail or the ones that don't require data and evaluate those first um, so that if they fail, it won't go to the bother of bringing in the database uh, facts so that it can opt optimize those. So it tries to push the push any sort of atoms that match data to the to the, the last stage of an evaluation, <coughs> me, so that um, if if another thing fails beforehand, you will not have actually brought in any data for certain for certain queries. Uh, next slide, please, number fifty-four. And it's important to. Um, to note that this, um, these optimizations can work quite well for, for queries um, because you're, you're, you can essentially have one rule, as it were, or one pattern that you're trying to match. Obviously, optimizing for an entire rule base um, <coughs> might not necessarily be so dramatic. If you have, say, 50 rules that you would like to evaluate and you would like to pull the data in from a relational database to evaluate those rules, um, it's not going to be, the optimizations are not going to be so evident because you, you're probably going to hit all of the database or a, a good portion of it for a lot of random queries for a lot of, or for a lot of random rules. So we're really sort of focusing this on the, on the querying side of things, even though, uh, as I say here, it's still possible perhaps to exploit some optimizations in a rule-based system in the sense that um, you might have, you might know, for example, that a set of rules only deals with a certain time slice and you just bring in the data from the database for that time slice. So there's still optimizations possible, but the more rules you have in, the, um, in a, in a rule-based, the more possible options there are, and the, the less likely it is you're going to not require as much more data to, to do the optimization. So it, it, um, we, have, we have to experiment with this more, but we're not convinced fully that um, this will work for, for large rule-bases. We're really more focusing on, uh, on it working with, um, with actual queries, where you have a, certainly a, a sort of a one uh, one rule or one query to, op to, to optimize, which can be done a lot more uh, significant, more efficiently um, than, than optimizing an entire rule base, which is a much trickier problem. Um, something we're, we're also thinking about, we haven't done too much work on yet, though I think Tim has been thinking about it, is dealing with reasoners. Sometimes when you make a, um, a query, you might also need to invoke a reasoner to, to, to match particular patterns. That's something we're not doing at the moment, but um, people have been doing some research on reasoners that can be sort of queried interactively and that, that deal with a changing situation. And again, typically the way most reasoners work, of course, is that they pull in a, a model of the entire knowledge base and sort of deal with, build, build some, some um, do their consistency checks with the entire model. But this obviously would break the entire system if you have to pull everything in from the database. So for certain things, it's possible to um, perhaps only let the reasoner realize that only certain parts of the knowledge base will be hit and only to bring in 
um, knowledge for that part of the knowledge base so that you don't have to in incrementally bring in the entire knowledge base every time you, you have to invoke a reasoner. That's something that um, we're doing a little bit of work on. We're not sure of the, the results there yet. Um, something I guess we're punting on for the moment are, are so-called database updates where you actually put data back in the database again. Um, that's something we're, we're not going to deal with for a while yet. Um, we're really more interested in just pulling knowledge out. We're assuming for the moment that the database has been maintained by third-party software and it's an operational database being maintained by somebody else. Um, but this is something, so we may, we may start thinking about it in, say, six months or, or, or later than that. And um, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Slide number 55, please. Um, We've, um, we've sort of had quite a little bit of quite a bit of experience with Swirl now. We've we've found that it's quite a, a useful uh, query language or useful rule language. It doesn't solve all the expressivity problems that you would you would think it would. I mean, it's still um, a fairly restricted language. Um, there's still a lot of heavy lifting to be done if you have very complicated uh, things to do with your ontologies. But it it provides a much better, a much nicer step than just pure all constraints. So it's worked very well for certain tasks that we've done. So, for example, one of the projects, we did a temporal constraint specification. I think I showed one of the queries earlier, and it, was, it proved quite convenient to make those, um, to make those um, constraints directly in Swirl, whereas other more complicated um, expressions are, are a little bit more difficult. Without, without disjunction and without negation, certain things are quite difficult, even though we've been working on sort of backdoor extension libraries to, um, to allow the, to, the, the sort of to increase the the expressive parts of Swirl at the expense to some degree of, of, um, of safety, of, of logical safety, but where we're sort of segregating those systems or those libraries so that the core language still retains its sort of solid semantics. But there are certain things that you would need, you would like to do, for example, like creating individuals in a rule that you can't do in Swirl and that you, you need to do on many practical situations. And it really, I guess, comes back to the distinction between whether um, Swirl is purely a, a logical statement about your ontology, which it sort of is modeled as. You, you can think of a swirl rule as, as a logical statement about what's in your ontology. Obviously, when you start using it as a query language, it's, it's not really quite so um, grounded anymore. You're actually think, you're asking about what's in your current ontology, which is quite a different set of semantics. Um, so there's a distinction to be made there between sort of a swirl as a logical statement of truth and using swirl as a, as a query language, and we're, sort of, we're certainly aware of the issues there. Um, and as I mentioned, um, maybe this problem will go away ultimately if people decide that triple stores are, are, are the way of the future. But for the foreseeable future, um, I, I, don't, I think we, we, we have to be able to deal with um, relational databases in, in the technologies that we're, we're using, the semantic web technologies that we're using. So thank you. That's it. Well, thank you very much, Martin. That was both extremely interesting and extremely clear, I thought. Are there any questions, please? So you want us just to jump in with a question or use the 1-1? One, one? I think there's a, a small enough number of us that uh, you can jump in and I'll, uh, I'll adjudicate if there's more than one. But please give your name when you're asking a question. Okay, is Adrian Walker asking a question? Um, very nice presentation, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, first question is um, basically this. Um, if I understand correctly, you're taking one rule and optimizing it for SQL. Effectively, yes. Okay, okay. So, you know, w w one could argue that there's an, a different approach um, which, which would actually leverage um, SQL implementation um, quite strongly, and that would be to, to chain your rules back from the query um, and get maybe a massive conjunct out of that 
um, which uh, with some minor um, sort of syntactic uh, manipulation becomes a SQL drawing, perhaps yep. a very inefficient SQL drawing, uh, hand that over to um, Oracle, Sybase, whatever, mm -hmm. which has a built-in optimizer which will do the kinds of things you were describing about, uh, uh, about optimizing a big, a big conjunct, basically. All right. So, so I'm wondering, yeah. you know, is 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 there a, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the two approaches? Um, that seems like a reasonable approach, actually. The, the one thing I didn't mention um, that the, we, we've been playing with performance of this, and, and the, the, we often have to extend the existing database by adding indexes and keys and so on. Um, and, and in the presence of those, the, the query functionality actually works quite well, even in the presence of joins. Um, so, but I think, um, I mean, you're basically talking about generating a static map of a query to a, a big, complicated SQL expression, um, and then handing and then that off. And then letting the database optimizer... Um, that, yeah, that, that. That's, that's possibly a good idea. Um, it's, um, I guess it's, it's not clear that it will understand the built-ins, but maybe you'll be able to tell it enough so that it, it, it makes the right queries for built-ins um, to do that. Because as you mentioned, I mean, yeah, the, the database engines have been optimized for decades, pretty much. So um, that, that's certainly something I, I, I think I'm, I was thinking more of a partial approach, I guess, of, of mapping parts of the query. Um, but um, trying the entire thing, I guess, um, it should be possible. I mean, it will be a, a large multi-way join, but as I mentioned, um, the, um, by, by putting lots of uh, indexes um, and primary keys in the database, which you actually have to do anyway through the mapping, you can actually improve the performance of those joins significantly. Um, so that, that might be a solution that's, that's worth looking at. I have a, a second uh, question, if it's okay, Matthew and uh, Martin. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is Before a you do that, language, uh, Adrian. If I sort of focus very narrowly Adrian, on, on the Adrian. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, Peter, Peter was just trying to get in there. Yeah, sorry, I, Peter, I think you have the someone thought. who is on a speakerphone is putting a lot of echo back into the line. So uh, if you're on the speakerphone, could you mute your phone, please? I mean, it could be anybody, I mean, on the call. It's done by the sound of it. Yep, yep. Okay, Adrian, back to you. Would you like to start with okay. again? Yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll restart my question. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a semantic web rule language, um, and, and it's a submission to, um, to W3C. Um, but if I look at your talk, Martin, um, I, I don't see anything very webby happening there. I mean, <laughs> owl is used. But, but, you know, um, by the mention of Sparkle, which does actually sort of try to go out over the web and, and do neat semantic web stuff, um, it, it, you know, so far what I see is um, something that could be all on one machine and, and doing something useful. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you can sort of um, give us the long view, which is you're putting this technology in place because it's going to do grand things over um, an expected group of machines on the web or even over an unexpected group of machines on, on the web. It will go out and find machines that will, you know, have interesting things on and help to answer your query. So can you I, give us a sense of that at all? I, I think you're correct. I mean, it's, it's semantic web only in the sense that it's owl and, and swirl. Um, I'm, I think we're, we're more here. We, I'm, I'm more concentrating on developing underlying tools and um, – the, the, the web layer, as it were, is, I guess is missing here to some degree in the sense that I'm assuming people will use this for, 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 those, 
for those tools that they develop at that layer, but this is a, the fundamental lower-level lower uh, structure. I mean, for example, relational databases are typically not distributed um, over multiple places. Mm. You're typically looking at one in one spot in one server machine or one server platform. Um, so I guess, um, and I've, I've heard this criticism before of some of the papers we've written, for example, they're not really semantic web papers per se. They're more underlying technology papers. Um, and um, I, I can't say that you're wrong. I mean, there, there is no semantic web here with uppercase S and W, I think. Um, there, there are tools that people building those technologies um, will use um, in the same way as Protege Owl itself doesn't have semantic web technologies built in. It's a low-level platform for altering ontologies, and you can plug things in to use that platform to build a more sophisticated a tool as you, as you would like, I guess. So it's an, I, think it, I, mean, I think of it as an enabling technology. Just, just very briefly, because uh, uh, other people must have questions. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's perhaps a bit better than that, because there are things like that allow you to say, I've got three databases, one in Europe, one in the U.S., and one in China, and, and sort of walk over those once you have yep. a SQL query. Um, so, you know, maybe it, it sort of distributes at that level. That's possible. It's not something that people will typically do, though. I mean, I mean, they'll, they'll do separate SQL queries on different databases, um, and which is quite easy to manage. But joining over multiple databases, even though it's possible, is um, I, I guess that's possible. It will happen at one point. Um, but I, I don't know if that's a common model. Certainly not, I'm, not that I'm familiar with um, at yeah, the moment. Okay. Okay. Thank, thanks. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Can you hear me there? Yes. Yes, uh, Martin, thank you very much for a, 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 I think, a brilliant talk in the way you have implemented uh, your technology. Uh, you alluded to, like, triple stores being uh, the ultimate answer, or at least a much better answer. And, yeah. of course, Oracle has sort of uh, RDF triples as does, yeah, yeah. sort of native uh, implementations now, and, and they've Actually, I mean, I just yesterday I received the circular about I mean things they're putting into OTN uh, on the semantic web uh, uh, beta or, or pilot type stuff. Um, yeah. Are, are you familiar with what they're working on and see sort of things that that uh, this and whatever they are working on could uh, merge in? I'm familiar with it tangentially. I guess that there are other people in this lab that use um, they actually that they're using RDF, uh, sort of an experimental version of RDF triple source from Oracle in, in some um, gene mapping projects that they're doing. So I've been speaking with these people. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think the upper levels of this technology can map the triple stores very easily in a sense. I mean, um, for example, Protege Owl itself, you can plug in a triple store underneath it, um, or at least we'll be able to fairly soon, so that um, that most of the stuff. I mean, ultimately, an OWL ontology is stored as, a, as an RDF file at the triple level. So um, all of the stuff that I've developed at the top level um, should be able to map directly to triple stores sort of natively because Swirl semantics are based on OWL, which, uh, for good or worse, is based on RDF. So um, there's, actually, there's actually a fairly seamless path there from Swirl all the way down to a triple store. Um, I haven't actually thought about the implementation details yet of going to a triple store because I guess mostly none of the projects I'm working on at the moment use triple stores um, for, for what we're doing. Both of the projects are, are, 
are dealing with relational data. So, so I, I see a pathway there, but I haven't looked at it in terms of the implementation details. But I, um, conceptually and practically, it shouldn't be a difficult path to layer swirl on top of a triple store um, to, to do the same sort of to provide the exact same functionality. And none of the optimization techniques, or a lot of them, wouldn't necessarily have to be applied at all then, because hopefully the the triple store management system. Um, will do the things that, say, a relational database management system does at the moment um, so that um, it punts that a lot of the problems go away in that sense. But I, I, what I'm doing is, uh, is developing this because we have practical issues of dealing with relational data, and I think other people will too. Um, but, but I am thinking about, the, thinking about it at the, in the longer term, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. I guess I'll take the opportunity to put a plug in uh, one of uh, the later uh, events that Matthew has uh, been lining up for us, uh, Susie Stevens from Oracle will actually be presenting uh, on this series uh, on June 14th. Oh, cool. uh, okay. Yeah, so, that was so June 14th? I, I June 14th. I mean, it, we haven't announced it yet, but uh, I guess it would probably be of general interest I mean, to the group here. Thank yes, you. Indeed. That Thank you. Very good. Can I ask a question? This is, oh, of course, who's that, please? This is Ken Batslavsky. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I, I I looked at your examples, and you know, you, you mentioned you have examples where you use uh, classes and, and properties in your rules, uh, but uh, my understanding that is that in uh, in Swirl you can put um, pretty much an arbitrary complex class description? You can. Yes, not yeah, You can. What? It, it's not. It, you can. It's not supported in the current editor, um, but in, in in principle you can actually provide an arbitrary complex um, owl expression, and that actually you can you can implement that. You can get around that fact by actually implementing a class that that contains that expression and using that in the rule. So, so you're correct in that you can do it, and that's something I, I need to implement uh, fairly soon. But, um, but you can, there's a workaround in the sense that that arbitrary expression, you can effectively store that as an OWL anonymous class, and you can use that anonymous class in the rule. And if, and this is an important caveat, if um, Swirl implementation was dealing with a reasoner, then the proper things would happen. But at the moment, that those arbitrary OWL expressions effectively map to a reasoner constructs. <laughs> Um, so they wouldn't at the moment be evaluated. Um, I do deal with some owl restrictions like same as and different from and all difference, but the others I don't because effectively I would have to replicate the functionality of a reasoner in Jest to do that properly, which I certainly and I certainly wasn't going to go down that path. So our evolution path there is hopefully to go to uh, use Kon2 as I mentioned earlier, which is uh, a, a reasoner plus a swirl engine, and um, we hope to be able to interact with that through actually a Dig2 interface. Um, so that um, so that the the constraints will be understood then, and at that point I'll implement the those arbitrary expressions that you talked about, um, because at the moment you could you could type them, but they would be ignored, um, in the sense that I'm not dealing with constraints in any case um, in the current implementation. If, if that yeah, answers your question. Uh, yeah. Well, the reason I mention it is that um, I mean you mentioned that there was no negation, but I mean if you put a complement of in uh, in this class uh, description, then of course you now have negation. You have negation on certain things, yes. But yeah, you have you're have logical negation. Yeah. Class negation. 
And then you can also have unions, which gives you disjunction. Yes, yes. So you have controls negation. I guess I, I guess I misspoke, but it, it's not the same as um, as saying are there no individuals in the knowledge base that meet these criteria. It's not the same as negation as failure. I guess. Um, right. It's, actual, it's, logical it's, logical, it's logical negation. Yes. So I, I should, maybe should emphasize that a little bit more that it's there because it's, I think it's an important part of the language actually. And um, as soon as it's implemented, it will it will probably it will extend your expressive power somewhat. Um, it still won't solve the query issues because it's logical negation, but it's, it's, it does, I think, it will provide a useful functionality. So as I said, for the moment, you can work around it by, well, you can work around it syntactically by defining an anonymous class that contain, contains those constraints um, and putting that, using that in the rule. But for the moment, that will be ignored. Um, but ultimately, um, it, it will actually be, be taken into account. And uh, yeah, to continue, uh, I... I also noticed that you, you mentioned rule engines, but I presume you mean only forward chaining rule engines. I pretty much do, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how this would interact at all with a, 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 a backward chaining rule engine. I mean, Jess actually has some limited form of backward chaining, um, but um, it, it really, I'm really after talking about forward chaining rule engines. I guess I should have that caveat. Yeah, and you, you have a cert. I guess you had examples of a cert in the... In a rule, but you don't you don't uh, support retract, I presume. No, no. There, there's no way in a swirl rule of actually retracting a property. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I don't support it because swirl no, provides no way of saying it. Actually, um, there's no yeah, way well, of removing. It certainly would get interesting if I mean, it would be interesting if you would uh, if you were in, if you were uh, dealing with uh, relational databases that do have uh, delete capability. Um, that's why I said you have to really use, use when you're interacting with relational databases. Well, that's true. You, you querying them is one thing. Uh, reasoning with the data in them is another. Um, and, and there are there are issues there. Um, yeah, it's still another issues. issue with um, relational, uh, or just in general, higher arity predicates is that uh, you need to deal with um, essentially an existential quantifier in the in the head of the rule. You know, you're now. You're now creating these um, individuals that uh, that function as the uh, as the resource for for the, the tuple. Uh, uh, you effectively have to, yes, yeah, ultimately, yeah, yeah. conceptually so or interacting with a relational database would start forcing you in this direction, I would presume. Um, uh, in terms of the individual creation, well, you, you can you can see those though as as sort of. Um, as individuals that are created on the fly, but you can conceptually see them as, as always existing in the sense that it's just an artifact that an individual isn't stored in a knowledge base. It's actually stored in the database, but there's a conceptually, from the view of the model, it's actually really an individual, and, and certain parts of the system don't, see, don't know that it's in a database. So I don't think that, that instantiation is, is conceptually a problem um, if you view it the right way, um, if you basically see that um, you're just... You're pretending from the beginning that it's actually in your ontology, but it isn't, um, and um, you just actually sort of create one dynamically on the fly. But it's conceptually always existed, if that and makes sense. You're thinking of actually supporting this, this kind of feature. Well, you have to instantiate. Well, there, there are two ways of doing it. You can instantiate at the full all knowledge model level, or you can actually be clever and just pass the information to the bridge that it needs and never actually go through all which is an approach we've adopted before in the system I mentioned several years ago, so that when you ask for an individual from the knowledge base, you don't actually instantiate a real owl individual inside in Protege Owl, for example. You pass the representation of that individual directly to Jess, for example. Um, 
which which um, which thinks of it as an individual. I mean, what I'm doing at the moment, for example, in the is taking all knowledge um, and thrall rules and translating them into a just representation. So just has facts and rules. So all knowledge becomes um, some representation of the classes and properties of individuals and individuals as just facts. So from Jess's point of view, the fact that they came from OWL or came, came from um, a database is, is irrelevant for, um, from Jess's point of view. Um, they, they, it's just new facts, new pieces of information. Um, and in, in some cases, you can actually bypass OWL entirely in the sense of you can use the mapping ontology to know what to bring in, but you don't instantiate an individual in, a, in your runtime memory, which actually is quite expensive in Protogel and in most um, systems like that. You actually can instantiate a lightweight Java object uh, that you pass directly to Jeff um, and um, sort of get, get further performance improvements there, which I didn't quite mention in the talk. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay, any other questions? Yeah, hi, this is uh, James Duma from uh, Natobi Software. Um, I've actually uh, been playing around with Protege very much uh, recently, but uh, we did a, a project in the past um, where we're trying to do, I guess, similar things to what you're trying to do. Um, not so much with, uh, with reasoning, but um, interfacing to uh, databases and so on through, uh, through Protege. Um, yeah. And I was kind of curious, um, I guess, more about the, the specifics of how you did the mapping and, you know, uh, how did you translate, say, uh, an OWL class into SQL? Um, is, there, is there anywhere we can go to to get more information on what um, we did. Yeah, there's, um, well, there's a tool that we use, and we're, we're probably going to effectively re rewrite most of it, called D2RQ, which you can um, download for free. So D2RQ, um, which you can basically just enter into the Google, and you will find that it's, it's basically software that, will, that you can actually point at a database, and that it will build a, 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 an RDF model of that, of that database and some of the mappings that are required. Um, it's quite a low-level tool in that it produces like an, N, an N3 file, which represents the triples, and you, oft, you typically have to do quite a lot of annotation of that manually to, to identify the mappings. Um, but if you go to that, that, that site, they will, that will, um, I think there are some links to papers there. So there are several papers out there that talk about the mapping, and as far as I can tell, it's not a, a deep theoretical problem to do that mapping. It's more of a practical problem um, in terms of identifying the mappings. But D2RQ is probably a good starting point for a tool that you can actually play with um, okay. We're actually, we're actually using D2RQ at the low level to uh, identify the mappings, but um, or at least some of the mappings. But I think ultimately we're going to um, rewrite um, rewrite our own version of it to to, to produce things in a, in a more convenient form for what we're dealing with. And I was also curious, um, you know, how you would foresee dealing with problems with changes to underlying database structure, and um, you know, like in the real world in information systems, you have, you know, additions or what have you to uh, to your database in terms of what columns or tables or whatever, um, and how you would see that affecting, I guess, the, the, the OWL classes that you have um, sitting on top. Not something we've thought about much. Um, it's effectively, uh, yeah, I mean, you effectively have to remap, I guess, um, certain parts of it. I mean, there we have tools that we develop here, one, one, a tool called Prompt that deals with sort of ma matching ontologies, um, sort of dealing with different versions of ontologies, but it's not quite the same problem. So I guess the real answer is I haven't thought about that very much. Um, it's really, I, I view that as, as, as a, you basically have to go back and remap parts of your database when that happens. 
and maybe ultimately we'll we'll um, we'll write some better tools to handle that. I mean, we're really we're going to write some tools to do the mapping at the GUI level, but we're really more interested in the underlying technology, mostly because we don't have the resources to implement lots of nice GUIs for things like that. I mean, I think that's ultimately a, a, a management issue in the sense that you have to write nice software that the user can use to deal to identify the the deltas and to sort of make them obvious at the at the tool level and then um, help suggesting the mappings. But that's uh, something we may work in the longer term, but it's that that's sort of more more of a software problem almost in a sense. Um, right, right. Which we don't have necessarily the resources to devote a lot of time to. <laughs> um, so I guess we're trying to solve the underlying problem first and then worry about database changes, um, which, as you said, are actually quite common in real databases. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, well, I'll just chip in there because it certainly occurs to me that uh, one of the things that might happen there is that... Uh, Matt, can uh, you speak a bit louder? One of the things that I think uh, might get end up being tied up in here is that uh, a lot of databases uh, these days will actually be generated uh, from a data model. And a data model is really pretty much the same sort of structure as LDL. Um, and so I could quite easily see how you got some harmonization in design so that uh, the design of your OWL ontology and the design of your database could actually become quite intimately linked. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Some of you may have seen uh, Pat Hayes' COE tool that he was uh, he put up on the Ontolog forum, uh, put a link up to. Um, and uh, that, that's pretty much the same sort of thing as you get uh, for developing data models. Interesting. And, and there's some, I think there's some overlap too with um, a lot of people obviously have object relational mappers. Um, to, to basically have an object layer above databases that's sort of common in the industry. Well, and yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't distinguish between what people call object modeling and what, uh, what I call data modeling. They're, they're really variants of the same thing. Oh, okay, fair enough, yeah. Because uh, they do similar things in terms of creating indexes and automatically generated key columns and so on. Um, yeah. well, that, that would be a design level. I mean, yes. What, what yeah. you're doing is you're doing your conceptual work at your, uh, well, UML probably or, or, or something like that, level, and yeah. then, then you need to add some design layers, and, and you know, you need to start thinking about those things like denormalization, um, but those those are things that you can, uh, you know, and what which bits of the subtypes to type hierarchy get turned into tables or not. Okay, that's an interesting point, yeah. Do those sorts of things there. So, so those are things which are, are, are a level of design that, that you do, which is something you do after you've decided what your ontology is. All right, yeah, yeah. Any more questions? Okay, is, is there any wash-up that we need to do, Peter, beyond the... I'm also happy that uh, Tanya Tutorak and Tim Redman are with us today since the, ori the, the original proposal was, I mean, when we first talked about uh, database and ontologies, someone was saying, oh, uh, can we get the uh, protege people to come uh, tell us more? And Tim and Tanya were the first people we approached. So uh, thanks for coming here. Matthew, I'd like to ask a question to the convention. Do please. Yeah. Uh, uh, Martin. Yep. Reference reference slide number thirty six. There's an example there. 
the, the example uh, comes up with a conclusion uh, of finding all non-conforming patients. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we're interested in the conforming patients and not the non-conforming patients. But you say this is uh, a swirl closing the world, so opposites are non-conforming patients. If, 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 a person, if a patient is a non-conforming patient, then it's a, and doesn't satisfy that, then, then we will still be able to select the correct, uh, correct patient. But the, the left-hand side of the rule is, is still in the open, open world semantic, uh, because in that sense, uh, you take patients, uh, you take all patients, but uh, all teams who are not patients are also left out, essentially uh, are on the uh, conforming patient side. That doesn't satisfy the there is, there is a semantic problem here in stating uh, sworn rules. Yeah, uh, and a similar, similar question to follow after this one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, in, in sense, I should probably have not this example because, I'm, as I mentioned several times, for these sorts of queries, you probably shouldn't be asserting knowledge at all. Um, so here you're actually uh, you're classi reclassifying patients uh, as a non-conforming based on uh, a runtime, as it were, query um, or pattern. Um, so this this should probably not be there in the sense that you really shouldn't have. You should, if you do if you do this classification, it should be a throwaway classification in some sense. Um, or, or ideally, it should really be a query, um, so that you try to find non-conforming non-conforming patients in your current database and display them on the screen or something like that, or report them. But obviously, this patient could become conforming, as you said later. And so, um, this this is, I guess, broke my own rule here in terms of um, not not asserting knowledge based on these sorts of queries. So, uh, this is um, Twirl will let you do this, I guess. Um, 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 based on knowledge in the knowledge base, and um, you can you can you can break the world. You can break your model fairly easily, I guess. Yes. Uh, my other question, Martin, with respect to slide 38, there is an example there. Yeah. And, uh, in relation to this, I'd like to ask you how the semantics of swirl is implemented. Do we uh, does a swirl implementation goes to finding all keys marked person first, then all those keys who have ages second, then all those ages greater than 17, or, or, or does it go to finding a key tries to see if age is there if it is greater than 17? How um, the semantics get So the, the semantics are that all atoms have equal weight at the highest level, so you can, in principle, evaluate any of these um, atoms in, in any order. It doesn't change the semantics of the rule. As a practical matter, I translate these rules to Jess um, and essentially let it take care of the problem. Jess effectively builds a rate network. I do some optimizations in that um, if there are literals used in the rules, for example, um, I try to move them closer to the start because... The way Jess works in many rule engines is once a, an atom fails in a rule, um, the rest of the rule is not evaluated. So um, 
I pass it almost directly to Jess with some reordering and essentially let Jess take care of it because um, the upper-level semantics are the order doesn't matter. Mm. Obviously, as a practical matter, the order does matter in terms of evaluation. Um, but Jess effectively does the heavy lifting for me here in terms of evaluating um, how to, how to, how to um, evaluate these things most, most efficiently. Uh, Martin, actually, my question concerns the second part of the rule, the implication part. The P is at select close. Uh, if it's implemented uh, one P at a time, <laughs> will sound useless. Yeah, that was well spotted. Working on a set of P's. It, it should. In that case, you're having two rules concatenated. First rule selects all P's. Second rule uh, orders them, orders the selected sets according to age. Uh, you, you are correct, uh, and um, I'm cheating here in the sense that um, what I do in these built-ins, so in a built-in you can do what you want. Um, so basically in the implementation of select and order by, I'm, detect, I'm basically collecting the P's as each rule fires and building an internal data structure um, that effectively builds up a table. So basically the pattern on the left-hand side will be matched X number of times. So there'll be, P, there'll be basically P's and aged. P and age will be pulled out every time the rule fires. Um, and I'm pushing that into an internal data structure, um, and um, that's only accessible. Sorry? Oh, and sorting and, sort, and, sort, and sorting it ultimately, yes. So this, this is... Um, sorry? Go ahead. So this is... Um, yeah, this is a little bit misleading in, the, in that the, the, um, the values disappear into a black hole in some sense. From, from the point of view of Swirl, when you put something into a built-in, um, it evaluates the true or false, but you can do what you want in the built-in. So what I've actually done here is cheated a little bit, and um, basically I'm assembling something so that when the inference finishes, um, when the rule engine inference terminates, um, I have got a nice convenient table internally that I can now display um, um, so if you look at slide um, number um, 30, slide number 40, for example, um, graphically displays it. But what, what slide 40 is actually doing, or what the code there is doing, is actually finding this internal table. Because each rule in, in, um, in a Thrall knowledge base or in an all knowledge base has got a unique name. So you can find the results that that rule generated. Clearly, you have to be clever about optimizing and not having all the rules building up huge tables that, you're ha that are hanging around. So, um, so that was well spotted that that's, that the semantics here, are, they're, they're outside swirl in some sense, um, in, the, in that the, the internal code is collecting the results. Because as you said, each time select is called, it'll actually only get one P. Um, and same for order by. So it's, um, it's layering semantic meaning on top of, of, um, of something that's hidden. <laughs> but it, it doesn't interact or break the swirl model or, or the logical model in any way because the knowledge is just fed somewhere else to be dealt with by a, another application, which I guess is the important point, that it's pulling knowledge out but not putting any knowledge into the knowledge base. It's pretty much implementation dependent, I see. Exactly, so yeah. So this may possible that it could be an issue eventually in that case. Sorry, I didn't hear that? Portability could be an issue eventually. Um, this 
it shouldn't. It, it, it will be an issue for other systems yet. They will have to implement select and order by. But if they use the protege all environment with, say, another rule engine from Jess um, and, and call these built-ins, um, it, it won't be so it's not a portability issue outside of Protege Owl but it, it is a portability issue um, as you said in terms of if somebody had to implement their swirl rule engine in, in another environment so if I plugged in say Pellet as a, as a back end rule engine and called swirl built-ins to do the built-in implementations um, this would still work in Protege Owl environment but you're, you're right if you want to um, if you want to do swirl from scratch in another environment you would effectively have to implement the semantics of, of the select and order by but, uh, um, but in general, if you're going to another environment, you will actually have to implement the built-ins again anyways, because the built-in functionality I provided works within Protege Owl. You can presumably port those libraries, but it's still the, the dynamic loading of a, a Java library to execute a built-in is, is clearly Protege Owl dependent. So it's no more non-portable than the built-ins, um, that, that ex that the built-in functionality that exists already. But that was well spotted. It, it is a strange-looking rule. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Any any, any other questions? Then I, I think it's uh, perhaps time to close. And um, so I'd like uh, once again to thank Martin for a really very good talk. Um, and again, as I said, very clear. Um, and uh, hope to welcome you back uh, to another uh, talk in this series and as uh, Peter said the next one I think is on the 8th of March and that will be Adrian Walker so thank, thank you. you very much and have a good evening okay, thank, you. thank you Peter for all your organisation thank you bye 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 <laughs>